Good morning. John, I'm one of the pastors here, thanks to Perry. I think what I took away from that is if I play my cards right, I can have a free lunch two weeks in a row here at Calvary After Church. You know, I think there's only one thing that's better than a free lunch, and that is when the nationally ranked Colorado Buffaloes are 2-0 following the humiliation of the Cornhuskers. What a time to be alive. Okay, there is something that's even better than that, and I, I mean this sincerely. That is that we are gathered together here today and that we can hear from the Lord. If Jesus was here this morning, present in this room with us, speaking to us, would you want to hear what he has to say? And so would I. We are studying together this fall the revelation of Jesus Christ, the last book in your Bible. And if you were with us last Sunday, when we were in chapter 1, or you caught up with last Sunday's message online, you know that in fact Jesus is present with us this morning, here amongst His church, and we want to hear from Him today. How do we do that? Through this book, and through the power of His Holy Spirit, and we want the voice of Jesus to speak clearly to us through the Holy Spirit today. The last verse of chapter 2 of Revelation says this, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is a phrase that we will hear repeated seven times in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And if you look at these two chapters in your Bible and read them, I hope you have. If you haven't, I hope perhaps you'll read them several times this week. You'll notice if you look at them in your Bible, and your Bible is one of those that happens to have the words of Jesus written in red, that every single word in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3 is in red. These two chapters are exclusively the words of Jesus. And they contain seven messages to seven different real-life churches that existed in the first century. The Apostle John had received a vision of Jesus while he was exiled on the island of Patmos. And Jesus told John to write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Here they are, a picture. You can see that these seven churches are located in what we call today modern-day Turkey. This is where John was exiled in an island southwest of Ephesus. And these weren't the only churches in the region when John sent this. So why these churches in particular? Well, clearly you can see that it was easy for the postal carrier to follow this route. And it was, in fact, a common route in the first century. But there were many more churches in this region than just these seven. So why these and why seven? 
Well, what have we learned thus far in our study in the book of Revelation about the number seven? It occurs a lot. What does it mean? It means completeness. Fullness. And so the messages that we see throughout chapter 2 and chapter 3 sent to real churches that had real problems, real challenges, real people who were a part of it. And there are, in fact, particular messages for those churches But it's not only addressing them. I think what's happening in Revelation 2 and 3 is that the Lord Jesus is sending messages to all churches of all time. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ that churches throughout history might hear these messages and listen to these timeless words. They have been called a sort of report card for healthy churches. Jesus' assessment of them. He commends and corrects and calls these churches to be the kinds that He wants, not just in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, but throughout the world, to spread the Gospel until He returns to the earth. So today, we're going to spend our time looking at three hallmarks of healthy churches from Revelation chapter 2. We'll look at the four churches that are detailed for us in chapter 2. We won't have time to look at all of the detail about each and every one of them. I apologize in advance. For those of you who are already disappointed in me, I have good news. If you want to know more, Pastor Perry Marshall has put together a very helpful and very detailed reference about each of the seven churches that are in these two chapters. And you can head to calvarybible.com, you can click on the messages page, and if you go to the discussion questions link that's under the message for today, you will find this resource that gives you everything you ever wanted to know about each of these churches. And we'll look at three more of them next week. Each of these messages follows a similar pattern, a similar structure. Perry read for us the first message to the church in Ephesus, and you'll notice some of these themes that are repeated in each message to every church. Everyone begins with a revelation about the Lord Jesus. And that revelation harkens back to what we studied last week, the end of chapter 1. If you were here with us, do you remember the vision that John had about Jesus? And it described the way that he looked, the way that his hair was as white as snow, and the way that his eyes were like flames of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze, and out of his mouth came a sword. And each message to each church begins with a revelation of Jesus that I think is meant to help and encourage and remind the churches that Jesus is present with them. And then each church receives a report from Jesus. He says, I know this about you. I'm aware of what's happening with you. I am with you in the work that you're doing. This is what I like about you. And then, most of the churches, not all, receive a rebuke from the Lord Jesus. This is what I'd like you to do better. This is what I'd like to see improved in the life of your church. He begins this by saying, but this I have against you. Two of the churches have no rebuke at all. We'll talk more about them in a moment. Following a rebuke, Jesus encourages these churches to respond to Him in a specific way. 
He calls them to follow, often to repent of what they were doing that he had rebuked them for. So there's a response for them to follow, and then there's a reward for those churches that are faithful to the Lord Jesus. And then the refrain that we've already heard. He who has an ear, let him hear. So this is the structure of each of these seven messages. What we're going to do is look specifically at the church in Ephesus and try to trace this structure and see what we can learn and find the hallmark of, the, of a healthy church that Jesus would like to see. And then we're going to look at a couple other churches too as we try to search for three hallmarks of healthy churches from Revelation chapter 2. So in verse 1, Jesus says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Who is this? Who are the words of him? Whose words are they? Jesus. These are the words of Jesus who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Here we are with this apocalyptic language that we see in Revelation. The good news about this is that we have the greatest commentator in the history of the world who tells us exactly what he means by seven stars and seven golden lampstands. Who's the greatest commentator in the history of the world? Jesus. And he tells us in chapter 1, that the mystery of these two symbols that John sees in his vision, the stars and the lampstands, stand for something. The stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now there's some question around whether Jesus literally means that churches have literal angelic beings that oversee them, that's possible, or whether angels is symbolic for the pastors, leaders, apostles who are over the churches. Either way, what I think we want to take away from this is that Jesus holds the seven stars in his right hand. Jesus cares about what happens in the church. Whether these are true angels that protect and watch over and help the churches, or whether these are the leaders that Jesus gives to lead his church, either way, they are held in his strong right hand. He cares for And the seven golden lampstands, Jesus tells us in verse 1, those are the seven churches. Those are the churches that he is writing to. So this one is written to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Now it's worth noting that Ephesus was a large city in the first century. There were probably many churches that met there together. But Jesus sees this as a collective group. That's what he does for each of these cities. That there is a church that's present there in this place. And that's who he is writing to. Verse 2. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Jesus knows what's happening in his churches. 
And as we saw in verse 1, he cares about what happens there. He holds them in his hands. And so he cares for and is present with the church. So it matters what happens here with us today, my friends. And it matters what happens with each of us as we go about our business this time tomorrow, whether, whether that's at school, whether that's at work, whether that's while we're at the gym tomorrow, whether we're on an airplane, as we raise our kids and chat with our neighbors, Jesus is with us. And we know He cares. And He says, we know He cares about what happens with us because of how detailed this report is. He knows what's going on amongst the church in Ephesus. The original word for I know means like a full and exhaustive knowledge. This is not some casual awareness of what's happening. But a detailed knowledge of what's happening amongst His church in Ephesus. And you can see in these verses there's a lot to like about it. They have a thriving ministry. Many hallmarks of healthy churches are found here. Hard work, patient endurance, not tolerating evil, discernment. But like every church throughout history, ours included, the church in Ephesus was not perfect. Jesus has a rebuke for them following this report in verse 4. But I have this against you, He says, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. The love you had at first. Love is the first hallmark of a healthy church. The love you had at first. Do you remember the initial enthusiasm you had, you had when you first came to know the Lord? We were so excited when we became aware that God loved us and what He had done for us through His Son Jesus. And we just overflowed with love for God in those early days. We would tell everybody about Him. We would think about Him all the time. It's not unlike our first love of another person. We do crazy things when we fall in love. When Lindsay and I were first dating, I was working um, a job in Denver that had me work insane hours. I would get to work at 2 o'clock in the morning. And Lindsay was still a student here at CU. And when we were first dating, I mean, we would spend as much time together as we possibly could regardless of my schedule. And so there were times when I had to be at work at 2 o'clock in the morning, which normally meant that I needed to sleep for a little bit before I went to work, and then I would come home and sleep for a little bit. But there were times when Lindsay and I were hanging out, and it was so much fun that I just wouldn't go to sleep. And then I would go straight to work. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that there were times when I would have to stand up at my desk so I wouldn't fall asleep because I had been spending so much time with Lindsay. I just couldn't get enough of her. I'm ashamed to admit that I cannot remember the last time I had to stand up my, at my desk here at church because I just was spending so much time with Lindsay that I wasn't sleeping. Right, when we experience love for the first time, 
there is this enthusiasm that just overflows. What was it like for you when you first loved God? When you first became, of his, uh, became aware of His love for you? Did you act differently than you might act today? There is nothing like the love that you have at first. So what kind of love is Jesus talking about here? There are questions about this. Is this really love for God or could it be love for others? might be both. I tend to think that Jesus has in His mind love for God. And that's because of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22 when He was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. This is what every believer throughout history has been called to prioritize above all else. Love for God. With every part of us. With our heart, with our soul, and with our mind. Love for God. That's why our mission statement here at Calvary, as we try to be a healthy church, is this, that we are building Christ-centered communities of people who are fully devoted to what? Loving God first. That's what we're called to do. To love God with our whole hearts. Now, as we saw the report of Ephesus, Ephesus was a great church. They had a lot going for it. They were successful. And if you know the history of the church in Ephesus, I mean, they have a legacy like maybe no other church in history does. If you were church shopping in the first century and wanted to find a new church, and you looked up the church in Ephesus' website, and you went to their history page, you would see a picture of their founding pastor. Do you know who it was? It was the Apostle Paul. Kind of a big deal. Kind of a flex in the first century, right? This is our pastor, the Apostle Paul. He founded us. He was here for years. He wrote a letter to us. He wrote another letter, the first letter to the Corinthians, while he was present with us in Ephesus. Then when he left, he sent his number one apprentice to be our pastor. That's Timothy. And Timothy was there for years, and Paul wrote letters to him about how to pastor these people that he loved so deeply, so well. You can read more about the uh, the history of the church in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, and then there's more detail about Ephesus in chapter 20, but it's amazing. It's not in the Bible, but many uh, old school church leaders and church history has told us that the Apostle John was probably also, later in his life, the pastor of the church in Ephesus. So you've got Paul, Timothy, the Apostle John as its pastors. Some have speculated that if John was in fact the pastor at the church in Ephesus, that that probably means that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was also a part of their church. Because as you'll remember when Jesus was on the cross, he said to John, behold your mother, pointing to his mother. Take care of her now that I'm going to die. Okay, that's a pretty good resume of leadership in that church, right? What a heritage. What a legacy. 
And Jesus had a lot to commend about this church. But with that kind of legacy, you might think that a church like that, with those kinds of leaders, would have gotten a perfect report from Jesus. But what did he say to them? Don't forget about your first love. Don't forget what it was first like when you loved God with your whole heart. So Jesus encourages them to respond in a few ways. Let's look at verse 5. He says, remember first, therefore, from where you have fallen. Remember. Just remember what it was like when you first loved God. Do we remember that? Do you remember that enthusiasm that you felt? Do you remember the things that you did? Do you remember how it may have been different for you then than it is now? What was it like? Maybe you've heard the story of the uh, old farmer and his wife. They're driving along in their truck one morning. This isn't a truck like you see in Boulder. This is a truck, right? It's rusted. It's never been through a car wash. You get inside the cab. There's no heated seats. There's power, nothing. If you want to roll down the window, you have to turn a crank. You remember that? There's no captain's chairs in this truck. There's just a bench. And the farmer's sitting in front of the steering wheel driving, and his wife is on the other side of the cab, and she looks at him and says, Honey, do you remember when we were first married? We used to sit right next to each other, snuggled up in the cab. Why don't we do that anymore? The farmer looks at his wife and smiles and says, I haven't moved. My friends, God hasn't moved, right? So maybe we need to slide across the bench seat. And get close to God like we were in those early days. Remember what it was like. Remember, Jesus says. And then he says, repent. Repent. Turn back to me. Repentance is just a lifetime trend in the life of every believer. There is a constant course correction for each and every one of us that Jesus is kind enough to reveal to us, hey, you've gotten a little off the path. Come back. Come back. And he says, turn back to me. Turn back to me. Come back and follow me once again. We're all prone to wander, aren't we? Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. But here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. That's good language around repentance. Lord, I've wandered. I'm sorry. I'm coming back to you. Take my heart. Help me return to you. So Jesus says, as a response, remember, repent. And then I circled do in my journal. And I wrote over that, resume. Remember, repent, and resume. Do what you used to do at the beginning. Do the works you did at first, he says. So maybe you'll remember what it was like 
when you first loved God. Maybe you'll remember how you were faithful in studying His Word. Maybe you'll remember how you just couldn't wait to get to church on time so you could sing worship songs to the Lord and you wouldn't miss it because it filled your heart with joy and tuned your heart to sing His praise. Maybe you remember, oh man, I was in such an amazing group that encouraged me and reminded me that I loved God. And we opened the Bible together and we prayed together and it was so helpful for me to remember that I loved God. I need to get back to that. Maybe it's that when I was a new believer, I was so enthusiastic, I was sharing Jesus with everyone I met. And it just stirred my affections for Him. And I need to get back to that. What might it be for you today? What might Jesus call you back to so that you can fan the flame of love for Him in your heart? So that's our response to remember, repent, and resume the works that we once did. And then Jesus gives a serious warning to the church in Ephesus if they don't repent. He says, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand. That's a bummer. That's sobering. Remember, Jesus holds the churches in his hands. He has authority over them. He calls the shots in the church. And churches that lack faithfulness to him, he'll just extinguish them. Now, the church in Ephesus remained faithful for centuries. But if you journey there today, there is no church any longer. Despite its heritage, despite its legacy, despite its leadership, at some point, Jesus removed this particular church because they were no longer faithful And my friends, I think that's a warning for us. We can get caught up in our history here. God has been faithful to us for nearly 135 years at Calvary Bible Church in Boulder, and to Him be the glory and praise for that. And there's a lot of wonderful things that are going on here at our church. Our church at the Boulder campus alone has grown by 20 to 30% in the last year. That's amazing. We have incredible ministries. We have beautiful programs. We have kids who are learning about Jesus, students who are being called to follow Him, people who are growing and thriving. But we have to be careful to not get caught up in our success and whatever's happening here and lose sight of what God has called us to. And we want to be faithful. We want to look to Him and be obedient to what he has called us to. Because it matters that our church is faithful to Jesus, close to him, centered around him. So that's the first hallmark of a healthy church. Love for God. For the second, let's look at the church in Smyrna, beginning in verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write this, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. 
I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. And then verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. I actually think the second hallmark of a healthy church is suffering, is a regular part of their experience. That probably isn't what we look for when we look for a new church, is it? Is there a lot of suffering going on there? Are they experiencing persecution? Oh, I'd like to go to that church. Are the the people there going to prison because of their faith? That's the church for me. Now, we look at a church and say, oh, do do they have nice facilities? Do they have good coffee? Is the music good? Do I like the sermon? But what if suffering was a hallmark of a healthy church? Why would that be? Because suffering is one of the defining character traits of the Lord Jesus, right? He is a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, He suffered unto death for us. And there is a purpose for us when we suffer. And I think if if suffering isn't happening in a church, happening amongst its people, then we aren't fully conforming to the kind of life that Jesus wants us to live. He has a purpose for us in our suffering. Do you notice he says that some of this suffering is happening so that you may be tested, so that their faith might be refined, so that it might be strengthened, so that they might be steadfast in the midst of what they're experiencing, so that they would endure and be faithful until the end. Of the seven churches that Jesus addresses in these messages, two of them, church here in Smyrna, and one other, are experiencing suffering and persecution. And they are the only churches that he does not criticize. Isn't that fascinating? Jesus knows the difficulty of suffering. He knows what it is to experience that. And so he simply encourages the church churches that are experiencing tribulation and persecution. He is present with us. Present with His churches, especially when they are experiencing suffering. Now most likely, much of the suffering and persecution that they were experiencing was pressure from the culture that they lived in. In the first century, each of these churches was living under the authority of the Roman Empire. There was significant pressure in the places that they lived to conform to certain regular experiences of the citizenry of Rome. You might have to call Caesar God. You might have to pay homage to him in a certain way. You might have to go to certain parties and eat food that was sacrificed to to idols. Christians were having to take a stand in their day 
to not compromise their faith. And so they were experiencing suffering. They might have even had to go to jail because of it. Because they were taking a stand for their faith. But Jesus wanted them to have confidence that he was with them. And he he gave them a couple words, a couple ways they could respond to him. He says first, do not fear. Don't have fear about what you are about to suffer. Do not be afraid, he says. But instead of being afraid, be faithful. Do not be afraid, but rather be faithful, Jesus says. Faithful even unto death. So a hallmark of a healthy church is one that suffers well, that is faithful even unto death. Os Guinness, in his book, Impossible People, writes of a story about John Stott, who was one of the preeminent preachers of the 20th century. He pastored in Britain, wrote extensively, was one of the most important 20th century leaders in the church in the world. Mr. Guinness and Mr. Stott had a dear friendship, and Os Guinness visited him shortly before John Stott died. And after they reminisced for few hours about many memories of ministry together, Mr. Guinness asked him how he could pray for him. And he says, lying weakly on his back and barely able to speak, John Stott answered in a hoarse whisper, pray that I will be faithful to Jesus until my last breath. Pray that I will be faithful to Jesus unto death. That's what Jesus calls His church too. Faithfulness in the midst of suffering. And what's the reward if they do? He says, I will give you the crown of life. An eternal reward. Life forever with Jesus. I think we often look for an earthly reward or relief when we are experiencing suffering. And many times that comes. But other times it does not. And the reward we look to is an eternal one. The crown of life. Eternity with God in the presence of Jesus. There is a greater reward to be found in a faithful life than there is in a fun life or a full life or a fancy life or a successful life. A life of faithfulness to the end receives the crown of life. An eternal reward. So healthy churches are filled with love. They are faithful in suffering. And finally, let's look at the church in Thyatira, verses 18 to 19. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. He goes on in verse 20, But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now there was a real issue happening in this real church. But it probably wasn't 
with a real person named Jezebel. I think the names have been changed here to protect the guilty. There apparently was a woman who was a part of this church who called herself a prophetess and was teaching and seducing her servants. Jesus calls her Jezebel, which harkens back to the Old Testament figure Jezebel, who married Captain Ahab. She was a non-Jewish princess, and then when she became queen, she led the people of Israel astray and called them into idol worship. And the Jezebel of Thyatira refers to a false prophet like the Jezebel of the Old Testament who was leading these people in Thyatira to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I think the key word here is tolerate. Jesus says you cannot tolerate that in a church. Why would they tolerate that? Again, remember the context of what's happening. There was pressure culturally to conform, to continue to be a citizen of Rome, to live life the way that everybody did. And what was happening in Rome or in the Roman Empire? Sexual immorality was rampant. We think we live in a sexually immoral day. The first century was crazy. It was a common practice to eat food sacrificed to idols. And so there's just a pressure, like there is today, to conform to what everybody was doing. It's fine. It's not that big of a deal. Everybody lives life this way. Everybody eats that kind of food. Everybody practices that kind of sexual immorality. It's no big deal. This is just normal. And it leaks into the church. Can you imagine a church today feeling pressure to compromise to what's happening in its culture? And Jesus' call is to not tolerate it. The way I would say that is that the hallmark of a healthy church is holiness. That we are set apart and distinct from what's happening in the world. It doesn't matter what's going on in the Roman Empire. It doesn't matter what's going on in the United States of America. The church of Jesus Christ is called to be distinct and different from the world. To be set apart in holiness. And I think that's the third hallmark of a healthy church. Love, suffering, holiness. With God's help, this is the kind of church that we want to be at Calvary in Boulder. Overflowing with love for God. Faithful, even when we suffer. Distinct from our culture as we live lives of holiness. Now the vision that Jesus gave to John in the first century is one of seven golden lampstands. That's symbolic for the churches. And what do lampstands do? They illuminate the darkness. Think of those seven churches along that well-traveled trade route. They were like lights along the way in the darkness of the Roman Empire, pointing people to the true light. For those who dwell in darkness have seen a great light, the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. And that's our same calling today. To be a light in the city of Boulder so that people might come to love God and be saved from their sins by the power of His Son.
May we be the kind of church that shines brightly in 2023. Let's pray.